Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Tragic and hard to believe news out of Colorado, where three lions, three tigers, and five bears were killed by the owners of Lionsgate Sanctuary, which is 60 miles southeast of Denver. The owners claimed that they had run out of options for keeping these animals after recent floods made the facility unsuitable for the animals, all of whom were too old or too sick to be moved elsewhere. Lionsgate also attempted to place blame on the commissioners of Elbert County. This incredible story gives us a window into the dark side of many sanctuaries and roadside zoos where exotic animals are neglected, abused, malnourished, and and worse. Of course, there are excellent sanctuaries, and the director of one of them is with us here today. Her name is Bobby Brink, and she is the founder, director, and vice president of Lions, Tigers, and Bears, which is a big cat and exotic animal rescue. It's located east of San Diego in Alpine, California. Welcome, Bobby. Good morning. Thank you. Bobby, we heard a little bit about what happened in Colorado. What can you say about what happened to these poor animals who were, quote, euthanized? Well, I would like to know all of the facts because we don't actually know the facts from the owners, but there, I just feel there's absolutely no excuse for what happened. They should have reached out to other sanctuaries. Lions, tigers, and bears is very well known for going all across the country and helping to move and relocate animals. We moved over 400 animals last year. An elderly or, you know, physically handicapped, we, just, we moved a three-legged bear last year and you know we had to go real slow and take precautions you know a 12-hour drive took about 24 to to 30 hours but you know we did it and the animal was safe and there was no excuse for them not to reach out for help so from the news reports i take it that this particular facility was rather small perhaps underfunded perhaps sort of family run with who knows what stressors. Is that a common scenario in so-called sanctuaries around the United States? It's very, very common. And a lot of sanctuaries start and they just get in over their head and they can't afford to go on or something like this. And, you know, that's why I always tell my members and my donors to, you know, choose the accredited sanctuaries. There is a reason that we're accredited. And we do help the others that aren't to become accredited and help them to get to where we are. And it's just it's just devastating that they did what they did. I mean, a lot of sanctuaries have a lot of geriatric animals. I mean, we are the organizations that take the animals with the problems or the animals that nobody else wants. So we're all used to having to care for geriatric animals and you know, it's just part of the deal being a sanctuary. So using the excuse that they were too old, it it just doesn't sit well. Since you mentioned accreditation, what sort of licensing or certifications are available to sanctuaries? There's two accrediting bodies. One is GFAS, which is Global Federal Association of Sanctuaries, and then ASA, which is American Sanctuary Association. We are, of course, all USDA uh, licensed, and then it depends on what state and county you're in for your state and county. Here in California, we're California Fish and Game. So I would assume Colorado's is probably Colorado Fisheries, but I'm not real sure on Colorado law. So overall, how would you paint the situation regarding sanctuaries of all sorts across the country? Are there many that ought to be closed down or merged? Yes, definitely. And, you know, one thing you'll see is a true sanctuary doesn't breed animals. 
and they don't have a ton of babies. So when you're frequenting the roadside zoos that call themselves a sanctuary, a lot of times you'll see the photo ops or the babies, and you kind of know you're in the wrong place. And a lot of them are just deplorable. The conditions, you know, are not what they should be for these animals, and they just continue to breed animals and not have the means to care for them because the babies will bring in the instant money. Mm. But that only lasts for the first year of the baby's life, and then they have to support them for the other 20 years that they live. And that's where the financial burden comes in. So, like, when we take an animal here, we've got 65 animals, 17 different species. We have to be able to provide for that particular animal for life for every animal that we take here and give them the best quality of life that we can. So is there an effort to close these underperforming places down? Yes, but it's it's very difficult. Yeah. A lot of them are doing what their state laws require. Mm-hmm. And it's legal to breed and do the photo ops. And until we get a federal bill passed or until we get a state law that protects the animals, we have nothing right now. Bobby, my impression as an as outside looking at them or thinking about them is that they might start with um, a lot of good intentions and love and perhaps a, a messed up human-animal relationship that develops and sort of spins out of control with a sort of element of psychopathology thrown in there. What do you think? I agree. And, you know, the, I think 90% of the people start out with good intentions and then somehow they just go on the wrong path. And, you know, myself and my team, we've reached out to many people and, you know, we've delivered materials to their property and help them get their cages up to standard and, you know, try to get them going the right direction. But you, mm-hmm. you can't always, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them yeah, drink. Yeah. So let's talk about lions, tigers, and bears. How did it get started? And uh, what process did you go through to lead you where you are today to be such a leader in, in the field? Well, I started, uh, I actually opened a restaurant in 1990 in Texas, and that is kind of where I discovered the exotic animal trade and watched a lot of the breeding and volunteered and worked at different facilities so I could learn how to work around the animals once I discovered what was going on. And I moved back to uh, California. I'm from San Diego and opened Lions, Tigers, and Bears in 2003. And it took me about four years, three to four years to, you know, get the permits and get the land use permits and and to get going. And then we've just done it here, one animal, one habitat at a time, or a group of animals and a habitat at a time. And, you know, each year we're, it seems like we're building a new habitat. And I think there was 17 states when we started lions, tigers, and bears. It was perfectly legal to have them as a pet. And we're down to seven now. Mm -hmm. So there has been some progress made. And like we're seeing the circuses close down and see world changing. I think things are changing for the better for the animals, but it would be nice to see the unnecessary breeding stop where they're just continuously breeding animals for nothing more than to make a profit. We've talked about this phenomenon of cub petting with the big cats, and it's so disappointing and alarming. Bobby, what are the biggest expenses in a sanctuary like yours? For us out here in California, building, of course, building the habitats. We are building a multi-acre habitat right now you know and of course it will have swimming pool and running water and they have you know each animal has their own bedroom and den and lockdown and concrete is crazily expensive and so is steel and so it can you know cost in a couple hundred thousand at least to build each habitat and then but our 
main, you know, most expensive daily expenses are electricity, insurance, and then, of course, we have to pay some of our keepers to take care of the animals, so that adds up. You know, food per a tiger is about $10,000 a year for one tiger or mm. one bear, and that's just food. That doesn't include if they needed any medical procedures or dental or anything like that. And a lot of times as a sanctuary, they do, because most times when we pick up the animals, they've never really had any medical care. A lot of times we're actually doing their first physical on the grounds where we pick them up before oh. we take them to, you know, to our place or to another sanctuary. So we know the most about them while we have them in the hauler. We also work a lot with the, you know, first responders because they're not really trained to go in and get these animals out of certain garages or bedrooms or where they're built into kitchens. And we'll go in and help them move them out and get them safely to a sanctuary, proper sanctuary. Talk a little bit about uh, education and the role that Lions, Tigers and Bears and other top performing sanctuaries uh, do with right. education. Here, here at Lions, Tigers and Bears, we, we do a lot of education. We do a lot of community outreach where we table. Uh, we'll try to find the big county fairs and the, you know, the big street fairs, anything where there's a lot of people. And we'll just have a table and talk about lions, tires, and bears. We go into schools. We do presentations for groups of 50 or more. I do those myself. Mm-hmm. And then we do six educational visits a week here. And they're by appointment, and they're about two hours. And you just go around with the keeper, and the keeper introduces you to each animal and answers all your questions and we feed at that time so the animals you know they like to participate because of course they like food and so it makes it you know not only enjoyable for the people but for the animals and if they choose to come down and participate which we like so lots of education here lots of intern students who want to be vets or you know lots of biologist students we usually have about six to twelve students at a time here doing their internships or their volunteer hours oh that's great Bobby, Lori and I have been wanting to come visit, and we will try to make it down just as soon as we can. Where can people read more about you and plan their visit? Right on our website. So it's Lions, Tigers, and Bears, and I would love for you to come down. I'd love to introduce you to all our animals. Well, thank you very much. That's Bobby Brink, Lions, Tigers, and Bears. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today. We often say that Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, and we certainly cover the most critical and newsworthy topics and issues affecting all animals worldwide. When you join us, you'll hear fascinating interviews with leading animal advocates from all walks of life. From lawyers to whale protectors to authors to tortoise rescuers, Animals Today brings you timely, interesting animal news. And often our guests tell us how we all can take action to help our animal friends. But you know what? Just like you, we also love our companion animals, our dogs and cats and rabbits and more. Listen in and you'll get useful advice from expert veterinarians and animal behaviorists, as well as product news and reviews and more fun stuff. So join us on Animals Today and thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. 
Your animals say fun facts for the day are about koalas. When early European settlers first encountered koalas in Australia, they thought the tree-climbing animals were bears or monkeys. Even today, people still incorrectly refer to koalas as koala bears. In fact, koalas, like kangaroos, are actually marsupials, which are also known as pouched mammals because the adult females have a marsupium, or pouch, where their young stay until fully developed. Koalas are only found in Australia, and they are one of that country's iconic symbols. Koalas have special physical characteristics that complement their tree-dwelling lifestyle including their two opposable digits to grip branches and to pick the tasty eucalyptus leaves, their main form of nourishment. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Welcome back to Animals Today. If you're a cat or dog guardian, Hopefully your animal has identification tags on their body and is microchipped. Many people think ID tags are enough if your companion animal gets lost or escapes from your home, but it's really not. I mean, what if the collar falls off of him or her, or someone purposely or accidentally removes their collar and tags? Then what? Having both identification tags and microchipping your pet is the best thing you can do to ensure in the unlikely event you are separated from your animal that he or she will be successfully reunited with you and your family. Now, in a minute, I'm going to tell you a little story to emphasize this point that microchipping your animal is needed in addition to identification tags. But first, what is a microchip? Microchips are small. They're about the size of a grain of rice. A hermetically sealed glass capsule keeps moisture out and contains a chip, antenna, and a capacitor. Now the microchip is inserted into the loose skin of your dog's shoulder with a large needle. Now this may sound painful, it really isn't. The dogs don't even flinch when it's inserted, so it doesn't even require sedation. A very interesting little fact here in 1985, Dr. Hannes Stoddard invented the microchip-based pet recovery system and formed American Veterinary Identification Devices, AVID, A-V-I-D. AVID's pioneering work in the field of radio frequency identification has been globally recognized by the award of 37 patents. AVID saves pets' lives every day by reuniting thousands of lost animals with their families. Now, I want to tell you a true story. A few years back in Indio, California, a stray or, or lost dog was picked up and delivered to the Animal Care Center of Indio Animal Shelter. So that's the, the animal shelter in Indio, California. Although the shelter's usual protocol, like most shelters in the country, was to perform a scan for a microchip upon intake to help determine who, quote, owns this dog. Their scanning device had been broken for a while and dogs simply were not getting scanned. Now, we learned about this serious and unfortunate breach of standard protocol in a rather roundabout fashion. A few times a year, my friend Catherine would, on her own, arrange for anywhere from five to ten dogs to be transported from this disgraceful shelter in Indio, which had a very high kill rate, to a Northern California shelter, which was highly successful at getting their dogs into loving homes. Now, after making all the transfer arrangements, Catherine would pack up her own vehicle and escort the dogs to the safety of the northern shelter. 
Now, the dog in question upon entering the northern shelter was scanned and found to have a microchip, which provided enough information to locate the dog's owner, who proved to be a resident of the town of Indio. Even though the dog had no ID tags, being microchipped made it possible to find the owner. Now, this man truly loved his dog and was terribly upset when he lost him. He immediately jumped into his car, drove 500 miles to reclaim his dog and reunite him with the rest of his family. So except for the unnecessary thousand miles of driving, the stress the dog experienced and the expense incurred by the owner, this fiasco ended happily. Nevertheless, think how easily it could have been completely avoided if the Indio shelter only had a functioning scanner and used it. This dog was lucky to get out of the Indio shelter and to get scanned, even if 500 miles away. But we'll never really know how many lost and stray dogs picked up by the city of Indio's animal control during the time the shelter was not properly scanning, were unnecessarily killed instead of being reunited with their families. So very important, number one, make sure your dog and cat is microchipped. Number two, keep your microchip registry information current. The shelter where you adopted the dog or cat or a veterinarian can assist you in locating the registry for the chip. And number three, don't forget all companion animals should also be wearing current identification tags. And you are listening to Animals Today, your home for series talk about animals. Join us each week for animal news from around the world and visit us at animalstodayradio.com. I want to remind my listeners how important it is to plan for the care of your animals in case you die before them. And I want to tell you a little story related to this. Several years ago, when I was single and living in a condominium in Palm Springs, I had an elderly neighbor who lived across the way who had a dog, Chloe. Chloe was an eight-year-old white terrier mix, and my neighbor just loved this dog. Now, sadly, after an illness, this woman passed away, and she never made arrangements for someone to care for Chloe after she died. Now, her children traveled from the other side of the country to bury their mother, but they had no interest in taking or adopting Chloe, so Chloe ended up in a shelter, where, as you know, tragically, many unwanted dogs are euthanized. This was clearly the last thing my neighbor would have wanted to happen to Chloe. Now, fortunately, because of my good working relationship with the shelter personnel, they agreed not to euthanize Chloe and to hold her until I could find a loving forever home. And fortunately, this did happen. Chloe lived out her senior years, not only with a wonderful couple, but with their shepherd mix, who she adored. And you helped place Chloe, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. And your friend who passed away, she didn't have a will, but also didn't tell her children what she would want to happen to Chloe. So there was really chaos, wasn't there? There was chaos. Okay. So there's the big message. You have to plan, but what really should you do? And you spoke with Francis Carlyle, a legal expert about this of a few months ago, didn't you? Yes, Francis is a New York attorney specializing in trust and estate planning. And she shared her experiences with us in the steps all dog guardians should take when preparing their will. And the first is that you need to prepare something and you need to have a lawyer who's experienced in this. She explained that many lawyers, they did not learn this in law school and they're just not up to what they uh, could do or should do. So make sure you uh, speak with someone who's done this before. 
which is not to say that you necessarily need a will if you are going to communicate your wishes to trustworthy friends or family and even get it in, in writing. But just uh, make sure you take some steps so, so people know what you want. But Peter, you need an agreement from your friends or family. A lot of times friends or family don't really want that responsibility after they're gone. So just don't lay it on them. A further step you could take is to create a pet trust, right? Right. So you can't leave property or money directly to your companion animals. They're not allowed to receive that, but you can create a legal structure, a trust uh, that you can fund with money and then designate trustees to care for your animals when you're gone with your specific instructions. And it's important to review your arrangements each year to confirm that the caregivers and trustees you've chosen are still willing and able to fulfill these duties. And we do that yearly with our people too, don't we? Right. Which reminds me of uh, Leona Helmsley. Yes, Leona Helmsley and her dog, Trouble. Trouble. So Trouble was her Maltese dog, and she left $12 million in the trust fund for Trouble. Right, Peter? But later, the judge lowered the inheritance to $2 million. And listen, after receiving numerous death and kidnapping threats, Trouble retired to Florida. And she died at the age of 12 in 2011. But she had full-time security and received round-the-clock luxurious care from the general manager of the Helmsley Sandcastle Hotel in Sarasota. So that's probably the richest inheritance by any animal. I do believe so. animals today. So the other day, Peter and I were walking our two dogs on their leashes, of course, and out of the blue, another dog off-leash, little dog, came running towards us. Right. He had just sort of gotten out of his little gate in front of his house. Right. And now, thankfully, nothing happened, but it got our dogs pretty excited and we were able to control our dogs, but it got us talking about what if one of our dogs... And both of our dogs are large, by the way. What if one of our dogs happened to snap or hurt this little dog that really ran towards us just to want to play, I think, right? Right. right. So that was one question that we entertained. And then we wondered, oh, there must be many legally tricky situations that people encounter all the time. And so we wanted to explore some of these and we invited back attorney Kenneth Phillips. He is a nationally renowned uh, legal expert in all issues related to dogs and people, and he has a special interest in dog bites. Welcome, Kenneth. It's good to be here. Thank you. Kenneth, can you explain to us the one bite rule, and does it apply the same way in, in different municipalities and states? The one bite rule is an, is an old rule of law that applies everywhere, and it says that person who is the owner of any domestic animal, whether it's a dog or a cat, even a horse, because it gets included in that category, is not liable for anything dangerous or injurious that the animal does unless he's aware that the animal has the unusual tendency to do that thing. So like, for example, in a case involving a dog, if the dog has previously acted like it wants to bite people, whether it's bitten them or not, it's still enough information to make the dog owner liable under the one-bite rule. And the one-bite rule applies everywhere, but in two-thirds of the states, we have other laws that supersede it and are more create liability from the time of the first bite, even if 
the dog has not given any indication that it wants to bite people. And who determines that the dog once gave an indication that he or she wants to bite people? It's pure common sense. In a case that I would handle, we would talk to neighbors, the postman, the utility people, anybody who has anything to do with the dog, the kids in the neighborhood, and we would ask them, is that dog a good dog? And if they say no, we would say why? And if they say it chases kids up trees trying to bite them, then we go, okay. And then this next question is, did the owner ever see that happen or did you ever complain to the owner that it happened? And that would establish liability. Now, the one bite rule, again, common sense is used. So if, if the people say, oh yeah, the dog, whenever it's in its yard, it barks at people, then we would say, okay, that's not enough. Or if they say, oh yeah, the dog is always chasing other dogs and chasing other cats, we go, no, that's not enough. Because what we're talking about is, does it want to bite people, not does it want to bite other animals? So Kenneth, let's imagine the following situation. Let's say our dogs are in our secured yard. A ball rolls or is thrown into the yard and a child climbs over the wall to retrieve the ball. And one of our dogs happens to hurt or bite that child. What happens then? This is a tough one. Let me tell you why. There's two rules that would apply here. In the first place, the kid who goes over the wall would be trespassing. So as a trespasser, the dog bite statutes, they have exemptions for trespassers. So the child would not be able to rely on the dog bite statute. So then the next question would be, is this a dog that was known to be vicious? Because if the dog was known to be vicious, there's kind of a split of authority. Traditionally, under the one-bite rule, if the dog is known to be vicious and you're the owner of the dog, you're still liable, even to a trespasser. Wow. Traditionally, yeah. And the reason is that the law doesn't have any interest or had no interest in protecting anybody who keeps a known vicious dog or a known vicious animal of any kind. Traditionally, that would be it. Now, there has been some confusion over the years over whether or not that applies uh, in various states. So different states have come out different ways on that. So there can be a fight over that. But the I always... Uh, insist on adhering to the to the old rule, which is, hey, look, it's a vicious dog. It's not just like anybody's dog. It wouldn't be like your dog, Lori. I'm sure you don't have a dog that you know, you know, wants to kill or maim people. But if you did, I would say you should be held liable for that because you're keeping a dog like that. And hey, it's not exactly unforeseeable that a ball could go in your yard. Mm. So... I, I I like to I like the traditional rule on that. I do think that it is fair because I don't think that uh, the the public and our communities have any legitimate interest in protecting known vicious dogs. Same application, Kenneth, for someone's cat, let's say, or yeah, the dog bite statutes or dog liability statutes, whatever you want to call them, they only apply to humans, so that. There's never, there, there shouldn't be automatic liability whenever uh, an animal, whether it's a dog or a cat, is, is injured because those one-bite statutes do not, I'm sorry, the, the, the dog-bite statutes that do not apply to injuries to animals. And now that I've said that, 
I do want to say there are some communities that have passed laws that are one-bite laws that do apply to attacks on other animals. For example, the city of Beverly Hills, which is where I have my office, yeah. has a has a dog bite ordinance that applies to anything that gets injured, including property for that matter. So mm. the way it reads is that if you if if your dog injures any person or any animal or any property, you're liable in the city of Beverly Hills. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether the dog had ever done that before wow. or whether you knew that the dog had the dangerous tendency to do that, you're liable. So they wow. can have ordinances on the local level. This is what makes my field so interesting because in my field, there are layers of law that you have to check. Yeah. In other words, when something bad occurs, I have to check the city ordinance, the county ordinance, the state statute, and then I have to consider what's called the common law, which is the law that goes all the way back to the time of England, which is where that one by rule came from. So how about the scenario where a small dog off a leash runs towards us and our dogs on the leash, and one of our dogs hurts the small dog? Yeah, th- this is a, an interesting question, and, and it, it has a kind of a definite answer uh, with possibly a pit bull exception. And the, the answer is that if, if a person is breaking a law by not uh, obeying the leash law, in other words, letting their little dog run around, yeah. little dog, big dog, whatever it is, by breaking the law, that's, that's almost always considered negligence. I mean, it's very, it's very rare that it wouldn't be considered negligence. So you'd have one negligent party, the owner of the smaller dog, and then you'd have a non-negligent party, the person who's walking with their dog on a leash. And so obviously the cause of the accident is the negligent party. All right. And that's, that's pretty much, that's pretty much the way those cases always go. The only exception is if you are walking at, at your dog on the leash and you know that this dog is a, is a real danger to any animal that it comes in contact with, that it's going to try to kill it. Now right. there are people that have pit bulls that have manifested right this and then there are people that have pit bulls that have not manifested this so we get into uh we we or we can get into uh a fight over to what extent is a pit bull owner always always should be legally held to be aware that a pit bull will go after other dogs yes i will look forward to having that debate with you about pit bulls another time Okay, Kenneth, there's another situation which I'm sure is not that rare. Let's say we're having a little gathering at our house and a family comes in with their human child and this child pulls the tail of one of our dogs and the dog snaps and hurts the child. And given what you've already told us, uh, if you would presume that this dog has no previous history of, of aggression. Right. Okay, so the dog has no previous history of aggression. So, so when you look at it that way, you go, okay, the one-by rule isn't going to apply. So then the next thing you, you say is, well, is there a statute or an ordinance that applies? Well, all of them uh, have been interpreted as containing an exclusion, whether it's written in the law or not, for provocation. So then the question becomes, was the act provocative? In other words, is this the kind of act that justifies a violent response? So then you look at the response by the dog and you go, well, gee whiz, if the dog just turned around and snapped, that means in a dog 
from one dog to another, it means get away from me. Mm-hmm. And you start going, ooh, you know, the, how can I hold the owner of the dog responsible for that? Because the kid, the kid pulled on the dog's tail, and the dog was just trying to say, get away. Now, if the dog turns around and commences a violent mauling of the child, that's where you go, uh-uh, that was not justified. Mm-hmm. Even if the kid stimulated or let's say overstimulated the dog, yes. it wasn't justified for the dog to go that far. So now you get into exactly how do the laws read in that area. Now, I do want to say one more thing. When it comes to kids in the home, there is a body of law that says, and it's applicable everywhere, that says that if you have strange kids in your home, you have, as the homeowner, you have a heightened duty to watch the kids. So there could be circumstances in a case like that where a kid pulled on a dog's tail, and normally we would say it's provocation, but where there's still liability. And I'll tell you, and let me, let me just, so I'm going to add to the factual scenario so that you can see where I'm coming from on this. Let's say you're having that party, you have the kids over, and these kids are really rowdy and really out of hand. And you're just drinking your beer, and you're just not, you know, it's just like, ah, the heck with it. Can't control them. Just, I don't care. The wife's not here. Let them destroy the house. I really don't care. Under those circumstances, if in the, in the, in the course of those kids acting up in a way that any adult would have, would have intervened, if one of those kids grabs the dog's tail and yanks it and gets bitten, probably you're going to be held responsible because you needed to supervise those kids. And because you didn't supervise them, they got to that point where they were abusing the dog. Okay, attorney Kenneth Phillips, thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. There's more Animals Today coming up right after the break. Animals Today tip of the day has to do with kittens. If you find a litter of newborn or very young kittens, do not assume the mother has abandoned them. If they are not clearly in distress, their mother is probably hunting for food or in the process of moving them. She may even be hiding nearby until you've gone. You should leave the kittens alone for a couple hours and stay far enough away so the mother feels safe to return. If she doesn't return and you're absolutely convinced they are abandoned, contact your local cat rescue group and ask for advice about your particular situation. And that is your Animals Today tip of the day. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I now want to play for you a segment I broadcast approximately five or so years ago about the devastation that occurred in Katrina and planning for natural disasters for your dogs and cats. But what about our animals in natural disasters? What can we do as pet owners to prepare for storms and earthquakes or hurricanes, whatever? And what can the government do to help our pets in the vent of a natural disaster. And we all remember when Katrina slammed into New Orleans as a category four, I think, hurricane about three, three and a half years ago. And we all know the horror stories and the 
terrible devastation that occurred to to people and to homes and schools and roads. People still speculate over causes of the destruction of the city's flood wall system. And, you know, some would even say that what happened in New Orleans was not a natural disaster. It was a due to some multiple federal failure. But listen, the point is a hurricane or natural disaster did occur that resulted in massive destruction. And we're never going to forget the devastation that occurred from Katrina. And as an animal lover, we're also, we don't want to forget that pets played a role in some of Katrina's countless horror stories. I know a lot of people out there probably thinking, you know, how can I even mention a concern for people's pets in the disaster when people lost their homes and their jobs and their security, right? But we must think about the animals. Many of those families lost what they considered as a family member. We talked about this, their pet. It's a family member to them. And to many of those families, you know, true, their pet was not that important to them compared to the lives of, or compared to their own lives or Uh, their families' lives or their homes or for whatever reason, they left their pet behind to die. And some owners expecting to return a few days later left food and water for their pets. And you know what happened. The days turned into weeks and, and pets had to struggle or survive without supplies or the love and care of their owners. But in, in any and all of these cases, thousands of animals suffered and died. And good came out of it, though. I have to tell you, because um, provisions were made for the animals, for future disasters because of what happened in in Katrina. It was estimated that 600,000 pets were killed or left without shelter as a result of Hurricane Katrina. Thousands died from drowning and starvation and illness, and dogs tied up in backyards were left to drown. Okay, you know, I don't have to tell you specific details. You can picture in your mind the way these animals die, but also in some of the some of the pets that actually made it out of the storm, they were separate from their own owners at shelters. And most of them never reunited with their owners. Remember, most helicopter pilots, remember this, and rescue boat captains refused to load pets in order to hold more people. And some buses would not allow pets. So while some field hospitals did allow pets to enter with their patients, and I don't know if you remember this, the Superdome, You know, when everyone was congregating at the Superdome, when that was evacuated, they were not allowed to take their pets with them. So rescue teams were set up in the worst hit regions in response to desperate pleas from pet owners. And the Humane Society of the United States, in conjunction with the Louisiana SPCA and many other groups, had hundreds of staff and volunteers working in Louisiana and and Mississippi. And so many of the rescued animals had no identification tags. So even if in cases where owners could be identified, they've proven hard to track down. Concerned animal lovers across the nation adopted Katrina orphaned cats and dogs. They were sending animals all over the country. I personally know of one shelter here in our own valley that took homeless and abandoned and sick pets in from Katrina. But the biggest issue to emergency authorities at the time were the people who stayed in New Orleans during Katrina stayed because they refused to leave their pets behind. And we we spoke about this at length. We know to a lot of people these animals are like their children and and their family. And a survey conducted after Katrina found that 44% of those who chose to ride out the storm, they did it because they could not evacuate with their animals. So a bill was initiated 
in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, when the abandonment of many thousands of pets and other animals brought the matter of animal welfare in disasters to national attention. The Pets Evacuation and Transportation Standards Act, okay, P-E-T-S, PETS, was a bipartisan initiative in the United States House of Representatives. They set it up to require states seeking FEMA assistance to accommodate pets and service animals in their plans for evacuating residents facing disaster. The bill passed the House of Representatives on May 22nd, 2006, and it was signed into law by President George W. Bush on October 6, 2006. The bill is now public law. I don't know if you remember, this bill was initially inspired by the story of Snowball. I don't remember exactly, but it went something like this. Some police officer or some authority confiscated a little boy's dog named Snowball from the little boy. And and you just see pictures of the boy crying and, and, you know, give me back my little dog, Snowball. And because I guess the dog wasn't allowed on the bus. So this attracted national attention. And everyone at the time was on a mission to help locate Snowball and reunite him with the boy. And I do remember there were some initial reports saying that they finally located and found Snowball. And then these original reports of, of recovery or Snowball were inaccurate. It ended up being another dog and Snowball was never found and, and, or reunited with the boy. So inspired by the story of Snowball, U.S. Representative Tom Lantos, Democrat, California, introduced the Pets Evacuation and Transportation Standards Act to the House of Representatives. So, you know, our pets depend on us for their safety and survival. As responsible pet owners, we have an obligation to know what to do in case a disaster strikes, which can occur at a moment's notice. Whether they are a natural disaster from fire or storms or man-made disasters such as a terrorist attack, the best way to beat it is to plan early. And the devastating effects of the hurricane has pushed local and federal government to either change their policies or develop new ones to include the safety of pets. Okay? But you and I need to make sure we do everything in our power to make sure our family, including our pets, are safe. You need to establish a good plan of action. And the best time to think about the safety of your family, including your pet, is prior to there being a disaster. Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Today's Animals Today fun facts are about penguins. Specifically, the world's biggest penguin, or at least the fossilized remains of it, were recently discovered in Antarctica. 37 million years ago, a giant penguin, almost seven feet tall, inhabited the rocky shores and the seas. Scientists believe this huge aquatic bird would have been able to stay underwater 40 minutes or longer, allowing it to hunt deep sea fish. The second largest penguin ever discovered was merely five feet tall. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today.